Welcome to the Mac Emerge Podcast. My name is Teresa Chan, and with me I have Kevin Dom, Brendan Trotter, and Joanna Dida, and we'll be your podcast team. Our goal is to connect all the McMaster affiliated emergency physicians so we all get to know each other a little better. We have so much great talent and expertise in this region. We want to highlight it into one regional podcast. Each podcast features one invited guest to speak about their expertise or interests. Additionally, we will feature external speakers who have delivered regional rounds at one of our teaching sites. And don't forget about the residents. We'll be featuring stories about our residents and what they've been up to as well. All right, are you ready? Let's get started with this month's episode. Okay, so thank you very much for tuning in, everyone. I have the esteemed privilege of introducing one of my friends and colleagues, Dr. Jonathan Sherbino. He is a trauma team leader at the Hamilton General Hospital and a seasoned emergency physician at St. Joseph's Healthcare in Hamilton. Um, Today, we've asked him to speak to us a little bit about some pearls he has for those of us who are encountering traumas, uh, because I think that he has some real game time experience that he can share with us. Uh, Thanks, Teresa, for inviting me to the podcast. It's a real privilege. Um, I I start with the idea of having some pearls to share, but it's with a great deal of humility. My job as a trauma team leader at the Hamilton General is an easy job in comparison to many of the listeners. Uh, I have every resource immediately at my uh, beck and call, and that makes my job infinitely easier than the challenges of working in a small, single-coverage rural emergency department. I recently had a case and it made me even more humble in terms of the resources available to me. I was working at an urgent care clinic when I had a stab wound come in and I knew exactly what to do, except I didn't have any of the tools that I needed, including a tourniquet. I actually had to call 911 so that I could get police to arrive with some of the gear that I needed. So in that moment, when I phoned the trauma service to accept this patient, the friend on the other end of the line asked me, Sherpa, what are you doing? You know better than this. I said, of course I know better than this. I just can't do better than this in this resource-poor environment. So please, uh, dear listener, take all of this with a grain of salt. I have a really healthy appreciation for the challenges of working in an area where you may not have all the resources of an urban tertiary trauma center or all of the other assistance from colleagues in other healthcare uh, disciplines. So that's my preface. All right, great. So uh, I guess one of the things that often I wonder about as a non-trauma team specialist is what are some things that we should do in the first, let's say that golden hour when someone arrives on our doorstep, what what, what would be your first approach that you think there are some checklists that we need to do? So uh, I'll, I'll maybe, I'm not sure if I have a systematic scientific answer to your question, But one of the things that uh, I think at the start is, what's the ultimate destination for this patient? And so you're going to be initiating resuscitation. And for most of us, that's not the challenge. The challenge is to anticipate what is the most resource intensive or most time delayed element, and that is transfer of the patient. And there seems to be a bit of an apprehension in terms of consulting the trauma service through critical in the sense that everything needs to be sorted out, all the problems identified, and only a a real decision of, yes, we're going to accept them. As a trauma team leader, I'm more than happy to have conversations by phone to walk through certain steps to provide some over-the-phone guidance and to suggest best practices. And I've said this at a number of venues, but the most important pearl I have is really we don't want to delay transfer. We have resources and we have access to um, surgical and resuscitative resources that you probably don't have in your center. And so we don't need 
imaging to be complete. We don't need all diagnostic elements to be complete. We want the patient resuscitated. We want the patient safe for transfer. And the only two diagnostic tests that we really want are a chest X-ray and a pelvic X-ray because that will change therapies prior to transfer. But if you ever say, I wonder if I should send this patient to the CT scanner, the answer is no. If you ever say, I wonder if I should get an opinion from a trauma team leader, the answer is always yes. We'd be happy to talk to you even in the early phases to give you some guidance, but please don't feel the obligation to get everything sorted out before you pick up the phone and talk to us. All right. And so uh, let's say you're receiving someone on the other end or you just really have a patient who's really tanking before transport arrives. Um, what are some things that you can remind us of? I, I think that all of us have taken the ATLS courses, we've seen resuscitations, we've actually managed them, but sometimes there's maybe a couple of things that we can bring out that we can all be reminded of sometimes. Okay, so I think I have three quick pearls that hopefully you can keep in your working memory and maybe process into your long-term memory. So the first is the airway isn't always first. And so we have these algorithms that tell us that the first approach in the sick trauma patient is to capture the airway. But I will tell you that in my practice, it is infrequent that the airway is the most pressing issue. Now, that sets aside penetrating trauma to the face or the neck, sets aside uh, significant blunt face or neck trauma, and it sets aside burn injuries. But those are not typical. Typically, we see massive trunco-abdominal trauma or uh, infrequently penetrating trunco-abdominal trauma. Now, if you assume that the airway is always first and induce a patient for definitive airway control, more often than not, you're gonna make your life a whole lot worse than better. Putting a piece of latex into the trachea does not get over the issues of massive hemorrhage and blood loss and does not necessarily fix all of your issues around ventilatory failure. It's a good step, it's probably an important step, and it's probably the, one of the final steps you'll need to do before you transfer your patient. But you should look to say, if there is no immediate causes of a difficult airway that, pre that require immediate intubation, I would very much encourage establishing an IV, fluid resuscitating the patient, and trying to normalize some of the hemodynamic properties before you give an induction agent even a so-called hemodynamic neutral induction agent such as ketamine and capturing the airway. Because in the very sick, profoundly hemodynamically deranged patient, any induction agent will lead to hypotension and potential circulatory collapse. So the airway isn't always first. Think hard and fast about resuscitating your patient before you proceed to intubation. Yeah, I think the old adage is fill the tank before you like mess with the drugs because I think what happens is when you when you give a patient who is dependent on their own endogenous catecholamines for that basically they've they're basically run their own epinephrine infusion and you take that away that drive away right their circulatory system we've all seen it with the sepsis patients with trauma patients so I think that's a great reminder now you t said about fluid resuscitation I'm going to hold you on that one can you tell me what you mean by fluid resuscitation do you do you actually mean like saline or ringers or are you thinking like with a with a shocky trauma patient should we be leaning on something else yeah, so my pearl number two is you don't save trauma patients with salt water, full stop. And we've all been trained and we've, there's all this dogma around how many liters of crystalloids appropriate. It used to be two, maybe now it's one. And my answer to you is crystalloid doesn't save anybody. 
Salt water is not going to save you when your belly's full of blood. So we should be looking at getting access to blood early. Now, for some uh, listeners, they're going to say we don't have access to blood. And so for those individuals, I'll tell you that that's a difficult place to be and you want to optimize intravascular volume in whatever way you can consider. But I would say after I've just kind of poo-pooed all this hard thresholds, if you're giving somebody more than a liter of crystalloid, ask yourself, what benefit are you offering? It dilutes clotting factor, it doesn't carry oxygen, and it probably makes your patient cold because it's probably coming right off the shelf. And that hypothermia is going to accelerate all of the coagulopathy in the massively injured trauma patient. So when to think about blood? Um, we will let trauma patients' blood pressures run low. So if you don't have a head injury, we're happy at a MAP of 65. If you have a head injury, we're happy at a MAP of around 80. But really, it's the art of medicine. Do I have someone who I think is perfusing? Are they talking to me? Um, is the skin warm? People always say things about urine output, and I find that crazy because in the first hour of resuscitation, I have no idea what that looks like. So it's a little bit of clinical gestalt and experience, and all of our listeners have that. Do I think that uh, vital organs are being effectively perfused, not being too hung up on the numbers, and having a little satisfaction of saying, I can let my map drip, drift as low as 65, and the literature, and certainly the trauma service, is going to be behind me. And if I don't think the person is well perfused, if those numbers, which are not hard and fast, I'm feeling pretty uncomfortable that I'm under where they should be, mm -hmm. 65 or 80, then the drug of choice is blood. It's not salt. All right. Are there any other things that we can also consider? Any other drugs that might help with hemodynamics? So one of the other drugs that we'd really encourage um, all of our sending facilities to consider is tranexamic acid. Um, there's really strong evidence that is generalizable to peripheral and small centers. Um, there's virtually no identified harm to the administration of this drug. Um, it's simple to administer, and if it's on board within three hours of initial injury, um, there is significant benefit to the patient. Mm -hmm. Having said that, if you are struggling to do a whole bunch of other things and in the midst of that, as the patient's walking out the door, you haven't initiated that, that treatment. Um, I don't think anyone's going to hold you up on this last final bit. But if you want to kind of have a sophisticated practice, um, administering one gram of TXA um, over 20 minutes um, during the initial resuscitation, um, we think that is going to have a lot of benefit without any downstream significant effect. All right. So tranexamic acid, blood, okay, and uh, don't always prioritize the airway. That's what you've told us so far. Any other pearls that you think that we should know about? My third pearl is control the bleeding. And this seems really obvious, but in our rush to think about pharmacotherapies, in our rush for some of our surgical interventions, um, we seem to deprioritize a really important element. So it's great to think about one-to-one-to-one -one -one massive hemorrhage uh, transfusion protocols, or it's great to think about approaches to managing massive hemothorax. But you know what's a really great approach to managing massive hemorrhage? is hemorrhage control. And it's so basic that we often deprioritize it. So here are three things that I think we don't do well. Extremity bleeding, we don't do a good job of, in a timely fashion, putting on a tourniquet. And you already heard my, my anecdote at the top of the, top of the line. So if you are a center that... Um, on occasion may receive uh, trauma, you should have uh, a tourniquet stocked in your department. If you don't, go out and buy one. They're not expensive. 
Go talk to your EMS providers. They'll tell you what um, vendor they're using. Um, we have the benefit of using uh, inflatable uh, pressure cuffs, but we don't need to transfer those patients um, in an ambulance or by air. And so you need something that is portable. Second, the pressure dressings that we see on our patients often are bloody pillows of gauze. The best way to apply pressure is using a very small surface area. And so in my initial resuscitation, I will often dedicate one provider, which is easy for me because I have too many people in the room, to use a 4x4 folded several times and with two fingers directly over the wound to stop bleeding. What we sometimes see is the surrogate, which is a bunch of abdominal pads piled one on top until you have something six to eight inches uh, thick with a tensor bandage on top. And all that does is become a really nice sponge for collecting blood that, is a, that you can't see and so you don't have an accurate sense of is hemorrhage control underway. And so a pressure dressing really needs to be a small area with very intense pressure over a very small surface area. That's the best way to get occlusion of a vessel. My, my final bit is placing of a pelvic binder, and I'm not advocating for any commercial device. I don't think they are as effective as a simple sheet. There's controversy in the literature as to the benefit, but for now, it, my read of the evidence says there's not a lot of downside, and if it's applied correctly, there is potential benefit. The problem, of course, is that too often where we assume the appropriate um, sheet used as a pelvic binder being placed is in, a, is in the wrong place. Put another way, take a sheet, fold it on length until you have a width of about 10, 10 to 12 centimeters. Then feel the anterior iliac spine and the greater trochanter of the hip and wrap it around that area. It will look like it's too low, like it's occluding the, the, um, the groin and that it's riding low on the thighs. If you think it's too low, it's probably in the right place. If you think it's in the right place, it's probably acting as a cinch around the abdomen and it's not preventing any movement through the pelvic bones. You don't have to have it to the point you're getting skin necrosis. If you can slide one finger underneath it, that's all you need. And so we use uh, big Kellys to clamp everything in place. Um, you can use knots, you can use tape, you can use whatever version of it, but it's not to cinch the pelvis in, it's just to prevent a lot of movement of those bony fragments. If you're struggling to interpret your x-ray and say, I'm not sure if this is an evidence of an open book fracture, I'm not sure if the sacroiliac joint is actually displaced, there's not a lot of downside of placing it. We'll sort it out on our end based on experience, based on other diagnostic tests we might have access to. So if I was gonna recap my three big pearls, the airway isn't always first with those notable exceptions. Um, salt water doesn't save lives, blood does, if you have it available. And you don't need to um, dilute your entire hospital store. Give them a bit of blood and see what the response is. The goal is to make sure they're perfusing vital organs. What does the skin look like? Um, and then with a secondary attention to what the, the map looks like, 65 or 80. And the last part is those simple procedures that minimize blood loss can make all the difference in that patient. So think of whether your department has a tourniquet. Ask yourself, what kind of pressure dressings am I putting on? Am I putting on giant pillows with uh, tensor bandages or am I applying direct pressure to a very small surface area with a very discreet um, direct pressure by hand or by a bandage that has a very small footprint? 
And the last part is, if I'm not sure, a pelvic binder is probably okay, but make sure that it's not too high and that it's in the right place. All right, that's a lot to digest. So hopefully people can take it in stride. And if you need to listen to it again, that's it's great because it's a podcast. You can just pause and rewind. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. It's been really nice to speak with you about this. And uh, we'll look forward to hearing from you again another time. Thanks very much, Teresa. Welcome to Residence Corner, where you will learn about some of the awesome work that our McMaster Emerge residents have been up to. Thank you for joining us here at the Residence Corner. Today, uh, we are interviewing Dr. Paula Sneath, a first-year emergency medicine resident. Hi, Joe. Thanks for having me out. Uh, as Joe mentioned, I'm a first-year emergency medicine resident with McMaster. I've also been working as a paramedic for 11 years, five of which were done as an advanced care paramedic. Uh, my college training was done through Humber College and Georgian College, and then my MD was done through McMaster University. It's so nice to have you here. Paula has extensive experience as a paramedic prior to deciding to dip her feet into the emergency medicine world, and we're happy to have her here at McMaster University. Um, the reason why we asked Paula to come in, not just to talk about her past experience in general, but mainly because Paula is now a creator and editor of a new series called Sirens to Scrubs. If you haven't heard about it, it's available through Canadian. So we'll uh, get her opinion on why she was interested in the series in the first place and how she came about. Perfect. So yeah, as you mentioned, the idea is to bridge the two worlds, EMS and the emergency department together. It's something I've been thinking about for a while. Uh, it started out as a bit of a frustration for myself when I was a paramedic um, and for a lot of my colleagues as well. Uh, we don't know what happens once we drop patients off at the, at the doors of the emergency mm -hmm. department. Um, and we often find a lot of our patients are asking us what's going to happen. We just don't have the answer. We also don't have a lot of the background into some of the more in-depth pathophysiology uh, around many of our common presentations. So the idea behind, behind Sirens to Scrubs is that I can give a little more from both perspectives. As a paramedic, what we can do on the ambulance, what we can do in the field, some of the challenges and frustrations that we may have out there. And also to give the paramedics a little bit more of the pathophysiology and the information behind the presentations, both the common and the serious, and uh, give an idea of what might happen to the patient once we've dropped them off in terms of testing and treatments and maybe admissions and um, long-term follow-up. So it sounds like you're really making a solid effort to try and expose the paramedics as well as the MDs from the emergency department to both worlds, if I may say so. Yeah, that's right. right. Definitely targeted towards both audiences, both audiences as, as much yeah. as I can. Right. So, yeah. Okay. Anything else you hope the readers will learn from it other than, you know, the exposure to both worlds? Uh, I think just getting an understanding of each other's perspectives is, mm. a, is a big part of it. Mm. And also just starting a conversation between uh, different emergency providers. Mm. What do you hope the long-term goal of this is? So right now, as a paramedic and an emergency medicine resident, the conversation is between those two populations and the uh, content of the material is is from both of those perspectives. But I'd really like to use this as a bridging tool between EMS, emergency physicians, but as other emergency providers such as nursing or emergency dispatchers as well. So the long-term goal is really just to create those relationships and open the conversation. Yeah, it's interesting that you talk about that because currently at McMaster University um, FRCP Emergency Medicine Program, uh, part of the new curriculum is that as second-year residents, we all get to do a mandatory mini-rotation through uh, EMS. We ride out with EMS and we go through their teaching day and education day. And it's interesting because 
even as a resident myself, I've now learned or have a greater appreciation for what the paramedics do, but more so I just have more knowledge about what they do and what their mandates are and what their guidelines are and how much or how little they can do depending on the situation. So it's really neat to see that there's now actually something online that people can go back to and refer to without um, having to arrange these write-outs if the pro their program doesn't allow for that, right? If it does, absolutely great. So yeah, that's great. Thank you for talking to us about this. It's very nice to have you. Thank you for having me. Hello, this is Teresa Xian. I'm recording this at CAPE 2019. I'm here with Joanna, and we're doing a beat report from the conference itself in Halifax, Nova Scotia. We just wanted you to give you some of the highlights of the conference while we've been here, and maybe make you feel a little bit, you know, think you wish you were here with us this time. Yeah, give you a little bit of FOMO so you can join us next year. Correct. I mean, obviously, we're all going to have to have some people left behind to, you know, man the fort or woman the fort. But I think it's really nice to kind of touch base with what's going on nationally. And so we're in the exhibitor hall now, but we've seen poster presentations from mm -hmm. our people. Kevin presented yesterday, uh, our own Kevin Dong from the podcast. Mm -hmm. uh, we've also seen some really amazing speakers from all across the country. Um, and how do you find it as a resident? It's been absolutely awesome. This is my first time coming to Cape this year as a second year emergency medicine resident. And it's just a whole other experience and different from any other conference that I've been to from a research side of things, to be honest with you. Yeah, and as a staff person, what I find really interesting is getting to see some of my friends that I haven't seen in a while. Um, my cohort for my year as a as a that we graduated together, you know, commiserate, mm. connect with some of the mentees that have spread across the country and go to a lot of meetings. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, I have a feeling you would be doing that. But as a resident, yeah. it's also a great opportunity to meet up with some of your old colleagues, which yeah. people that I went to med school with that are now doing residency in emergency medicine across the country. Right. You can, uh, you know, meet up with some of the current medical students who have come out and it's been a huge number of them that I've seen. Yeah. Just med students coming out to the Cape yeah. Conference, it's like, showing their interest. And I was like, wow, I didn't know about this when I was a med student. Yeah, we had like 17 med students come with us yesterday for, you know, a quick drink and bite. It was amazing. And they're so enthusiastic about it. It's like everything's mind-blowing to them. It's really kind of cool. Yes, it's seeing, and it's refreshing yeah, too, right, from like, our perspective. Exactly. Yeah. Um, I think that from my point of view, um, as a staff physician, I think this is where you can do some of the really good advocacy to lobby for, for instance, you know, equity issues at the various committees uh, I think and to move the mark right like I think CAPE as an organization should speak to its membership and hopefully you're a member but if you're a member you should cash in on being able to raise your voice at some of these meetings and committees and 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 do some of the national work that needs to be done to make our specialty awesome absolutely and as a resident uh, being at CAPE whether you're a member or not just being here at the conference gives you the opportunity to make maybe a few more extra connections. Yeah. Maybe get to meet that staff that you've heard about so much, or maybe get yeah. to meet some of your, you know, FOMAD mentors that you've been listening to for all these last few years or however long. A hundred percent. When I was a resident, I used to fangirl lots of people at Cape, and it's really great. As a, as a staff resident, I think that is really cool to kind of check out what's on the national scene. And as a senior resident, I found it was a great way to kind of get a lay of the land as to what the job market might look like in PGY3 and PGY4. Absolutely. Um, and even beyond the job, just like 
the research projects or cool projects that everyone is involved with yeah. during residency and yeah. during, you know, being a junior or senior yeah. staff. Um, it's kind of awesome that like being here just feels like your doors open up a little bit and you can just be like, oh, that looks kind of cool. How can I help with that? How can I be involved with that? Yeah. And while I know that our region has amazing mentors, we were just at the Women in Medicine uh workshop yesterday and they had a panel discussion about mentorship and a lot of points were raised about how you don't need to have mentors just in your shop and maybe actually you have should have mentors that are outside your region or outside your specialty yeah definitely a fresh point of view mm -hmm. from that perspective when you have other mentors excellent well that's all that we have. Um, we're really excited that Kirsten's going to be presenting a top abstract. We're really proud of all the med students and the residents who are presenting their posters. Um, and uh, we're really excited to see all the staff like hitting the stage and making an impact. So uh, thanks so much for tuning in and uh, we will report to you another time. Absolutely. Till next time. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Mac Emerge podcast. We hope that this brings you new information and helps you up your game so you can deliver better patient care to our region. Remember, we are always looking for new talent and expertise to feature in our podcast. So if you're interested, please feel free to contact us at our email at macemergepodcast at gmail.com. We're also looking to improve your experience, so please submit your feedback as well. Again, thanks for listening. Let's all stay connected. Back and merge out!